So all those uh, ideas are there are basically kind of matching your assets back to to meet your cash flows or your liabilities. And you have to make sure that they match up appropriately. You know, if you're trying to match paying your mortgage or your living uh, your lifestyle next month with a stock investment, uh, that's a mismatch. And so again, kind of controlling risk is really kind of the first order priority here of why rebalancing uh, makes most sense. Welcome to Retire Smarter with Kevin Krosky. Find answers to your toughest questions and get educated about the financial world. It's time to retire smarter. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Retire Smarter with Kevin Krosky. I'm Walter Storholt. Kevin is the president and wealth advisor at True Wealth Design, serving you in Northeast Ohio with offices in Akron and Canfield. You can find us online by going to truewealthdesign.com. Kevin, great to be with you once again this week, uh, continuing to watch the markets. We've got a lot of good things to talk about on today's show, but how's life in the Krosky household at the moment? Oh, we are, uh, we're holding down. Um, I may have shared this before, but I'll, I'll do it again, but... You know, my wife and I, uh, since we go back and forth to Ohio and Florida, we we always debated, you know, hey, if we did homeschooling, we would have a lot of flexibility and really wouldn't have to be bound by the school year. And uh, we came to the conclusion that well, you know, we're just not the homeschool type. It's not for us. And my wife has certainly affirmed that uh, belief that we had over the last couple of weeks. It's, uh, you know, she's, it's just a lot. Uh, so, you know, we're good in general. We had um, a neighbor gave away a little kitchenette set, uh, kind of play set for kids and we didn't have one so we were uh, the happy recipients of that so uh, my girls are playing water store and I asked my daughter you know what is the water store what does that mean water store yeah I was like she's trading she's trading commodities on uh, apparently <laughs> maybe we should have told her to pick up some oil here the other day right Walter um, that's right exactly but uh a, a little play tanker, you know, in the living a room. Play that tanker, kind of yes. As long as she has room for storage. Um, the so the water store is. Uh, it's surprisingly they do more than water. They actually do tea and coffee and and Gatorade. But water is a common ingredient. And so my daughter explained to me. And then so I threw a curveball and I let her know that I said, well, you know, when you go number two, that's actually mostly water as well. And she gave me. <laughs> A certain look, and my wife also gave me a certain look, <laughs> and, uh, and it just really, yeah, took a bad turn from there. But um, but yeah, my wife reminds me of my sarcasm is going to come back to bite me as my daughter gets older here in the not too distant future. That's pretty funny, though. The water store. She's a little entrepreneur already, and uh, that's great to hear. I think I could actually see that being a great uh, a great name for a coffee shop or you know a place that does tea and, and drinks and that kind of thing. The water store. It's like the, the watering hole or something like that. The watering know? hole, right, yeah, which could yeah. mean a lot of different things, I suppose. Yeah, that's true, but uh, the, the, the kid version of the watering holes here. So we're, yeah. we're, so we're, all... we're holding up good. Um, <laughs> that's good. You know, we, uh, we certainly continue to be busy, but things have obviously calmed down. We're recording this on April 21st. Things have calmed down in the investment markets. Uh, certainly, we're still in a serious situation, uh, medically speaking, and you know we're starting to get these plans for phased uh, reopening of the economies and what have you. So all that is is good. One of the things I I realized in the last several episodes, I've been kind of re-listening to what I've been talking about, and you know, being our, our own biggest critics, uh, just kind of seeing what I said and how I felt about it. Now, you know, weeks later, and um, we'll probably do a bit of a redux uh, and kind of a look back here in the not too distant future about you know some of these things and uh, kind of look at the timeline, um, a little bit of crisis leadership, perhaps. But one of the things that I realized when uh, I was listening uh, to myself. 
uh, was that I kept talking about rebalancing and we need to be doing that. And we've certainly done a lot of it, uh, particularly in late March. Uh, but I really didn't go into that in great detail. And it's one of those things where it kind of sounds simple in theory, uh, but it quickly can get more complicated and there's also some emotional hurdles. So I figured we would really dive into that today and, and kind of explore it and, and, you know, start up kind of the high level, but dig into some details as well. So how's that sound, Walter? It's kind of the new buzzword, right? Diversification has always been sort of the big buzzword in the financial realm. And I feel like rebalancing has supplanted it at least for a little while here while we've had the market, you know, kind of near a bottom and, uh, you know, fluctuating and going through some volatility. So yeah, rebalancing feels like a, a good time to get some full definition and clarity on that word. All right. Sounds good. So we'll, I'll dive in. So yes, the important thing to keep in mind is, you know, hey, what is it? And then uh, kind of why is it important? So what is it? Uh, simply put, you know, if you assume that you have your money and say 50% of the money is in stocks and 50% of it's in bonds, and you just have say two mutual funds, uh, a stock mutual fund and a bond mutual fund, assume stocks went down by 20% and maybe bonds went up by about 10%. So our 50-50 stock bond starting portfolio now ends up to be a 42% stock and 58% bond. So rebalancing uh, would be to go ahead and just kind of bring it back into that 50-50 alignment. You're going to sell the bonds and buy the stocks. Uh, so sounds simple. It starts out to be simple, but again, it kind of quickly gets more complex. So we'll dig into some of those details, but why is it important? First and foremost, it's really a method to go ahead and control risk in your portfolio. You know, you don't want to, um, before we got into this early 2020, I mean, the market had generally been up for more than a decade. So if you say, if you started out investing, say you inherited a bunch of money in early 2009 and you bought the same simple kind of 50-50 stock and bond portfolio, you know, two mutual funds, and you didn't do any rebalancing. You just kind of bought it, set it, and forget it for 10 years. Well, I didn't run the numbers before uh, the podcast, but ultimately you would have drifted much, much higher in terms of your stock allocation, you know, maybe somewhere on the order of, you know, 70 or 75% purely speculating there. But that is a, that's a very, very different portfolio than having a 50, 50 stock and bond portfolio. So rebalancing again, it's just, I'd say a first order of controlling risk. Um, again, everything that we talk about here on the retire smarter podcast is really built around the concept of retirement planning. You know, a big portion of that is not only kind of the, the retirement planning itself, but then the, the retirement income generation, the the distribution planning. And we've always talked and preached about how the investments need to be married back to the financial plan. Uh, we talked about over the last supper episodes how none of our clients' money uh, over the next few years is in stocks. It's in bonds and it's in higher quality bonds if you kind of think about it in a sort of time-segmented approach. Uh, so all those uh, ideas are there are basically kind of matching your assets back to to meet your cash flows, your liabilities. And you have to make sure that they match up appropriately. You know, if you're trying to match, you know, you're paying your mortgage or you're living on your lifestyle next month with a stock investment, uh, that's a mismatch. And so again, kind of controlling risk is really kind of the first order priority here of why rebalancing uh, makes most sense. Um, secondly, what you actually find in the evidence, if you kind of look back on a historical basis, is when you do this, uh, it creates this kind of forced process of buying low and selling high. So that example that I started with, kind of the 50-50 stock and bond portfolio, 
you had stocks going down to 42% of the portfolio uh, after having a 20% decline. And uh, he said, okay, well, I mean, they, they've certainly just got cheaper, right? They caused me a lot of pain. Um, they didn't feel good, you know, going down, uh, but they've gotten cheaper than what they were. So the basic rule of investing is buy low and sell high. So the bonds went up in value. So you want to sell the thing that had done well and buy the thing that had did poorly. And if you do that consistently in a disciplined fashion, what the evidence shows over time is that it, there tends to be what the academics call a rebalancing bonus. So rather than just having kind of a, a set it and forget it portfolio where you don't rebalance, if you do this, you know, forced rebalancing process, this discipline process where, again, first order is you're controlling risk, but you're kind of, you know, forcing yourself into buying low and selling high. And I've seen studies that show that this rebalancing bonus could be around the, an order of like a half a percent per year. Now, it's not going to show up every single year. Oftentimes in, in years like we're going through now in 2020, you're, you're probably going to see a very significant rebalancing bonus. And in fact, we already are in March, um, but it, it shows up over time. So when I say, say, I don't know if I said 50% or, or a half a percent, but basically it's a half a percent per year. So if round numbers, if we have a million dollar portfolio, a half a percent is meaning that that rebalancing bonus is going to add about $5,000 per year to our portfolio. And of course, with the way that uh, the math works with investments is that compounds over time. So that could be larger. Again, very important. But the first order is we got to make sure that we control risk to go ahead and in the context of retirement planning, make our plan work, minimize any sort of risk of that we're not going to be able to meet our goals or have to cut back on our lifestyle, things along those lines. So those are kind of the two predominant reasons about why rebalancing is important. And I, again, I gave that simple example, but uh, some of the problems with it is that it sounds easy in theory, that 50-50 example that I gave, it sounds easy. Okay, I'm going to sell this one fund and buy the other one, um, it went down in value, but it quickly gets complicated in real life. And it's also oftentimes difficult to emotionally do. Walter, I'm just curious, you know, I'll kind of put you on the spot here if you don't mind. Um, but when you look back in March, I mean yourself. I mean you're you're you know, um, a very forward-thinking and mature millennial. Um, you're kind of in the wealth-building phase. But you yourself, did you do anything different to your portfolio through the month of March? Not really personally, just because I've got such a long time horizon to retirement. I just let uh, my accounts continue to buy on the days that they normally do with automatic investing into everything. And I tried not to, but I, I was tempted more so to buy more um, during that time. But um, you know, I, no, I, I didn't really change my behavior at all. Although I, and, you know, was sweating a little bit about it. I did stop checking the account values. <laughs> that's not a bad thing. It's, it's, it's I didn't want to look at them as often anymore. <laughs> in, in, in your kind of systematic investing accounts, what I would say probably your retirement plan, um, are you predominantly stocks? Or are you entirely stocks or are there some bonds in there as well? Uh, definitely heavy stock. Very, very aggressive. Okay. So you basically had stocks whenever going through the uncertainty that we had in March, pretty much everything went down in a uniform fashion. Uh, and if you were all stocks, there's probably not much of a rebalancing to do. Um, if, however, you know you had some bonds in the portfolio uh, and you certainly had some different behaviors between stocks and particularly high quality bonds, then that that's that perfect example of, of what I gave in terms of, hey, you know, stocks went down a lot. 
a high quality bonds held up in value, you know, we need to really kind of execute this discipline process of rebalancing. So maybe you were a bad example, but uh, thank you for playing the game nonetheless, Walter. Uh, well, I, I did help my parents kind of look at what was going on in their portfolio because obviously they had a lot of worries about what was happening and then being much closer to retirement. And it was interesting to see there. They definitely have a much broader stock versus bond, um, you know, relationship in their accounts. And it was interesting to see that the, the bonds had actually gone up in value. Value. And so I was like, see, it's not all bad news. You've actually had some things go up during during this time. That was kind of an eye opener for them because I think the the layperson kind of hears my portfolio is down X amount and you don't realize that, you know, within that there are account pieces of that account that may actually do pretty well. So it was kind of an interesting educational experience when this market is like melting down to actually see things that had a positive return over that short period of time. No, that's great. Uh, that's very observant and, and wise of you to do that. Um, you know, when you have stocks go down, they, I'll continue with the same example, but 20%. And if we, again, round numbers, say we had a million dollars starting out and half of that money is in stocks. Uh, so we have 500,000 in stocks. Well, if it goes down by 20%, that's that's a $100,000 decrease in the stock value. Now, again, bonds have appreciated, but they didn't go up nearly as much as stocks. So while it sounds easy, like, oh yeah, I want to buy low and sell high. I mean, if you just, what we're basically saying though is, you know, the thing that just caused you to lose uh, $100,000, yeah, we want you to buy more of that and be happy about it because we're buying low and selling high. So it's, it's like one of those I, things. I can get there emotionally, even though I didn't really have to make that choice. I can get there emotionally, and that would be a hard trigger to pull. It, yeah, it's one of those things where sometimes you there's like this knowing and doing gap. You know, you I, I know to be healthy, I need to go ahead and eat well and exercise. Um, in practice, you know, that's difficult for. I'm, I try to be pretty healthy, and I think I'm I'm generally happy with that. But you know, it, it's not easy to always be disciplined and, and do those things. And I think that's probably the example that almost everybody can relate to. Maybe you know some of these people with just like this super fast metabolism that I envy so much, but um, they're very little at least uh, physical observant repercussions from bad diet uh, or poor exercise, but I digress. So whenever you have this and we know what to do, we know you want to buy low and sell high, but to do it, particularly at a time like the month of March, where everything was doom and gloom, and it was the first time that you know, we were really experiencing the, the lockdown that, that we experienced, and uh, here in the U.S. anyway, and it was scary. It was palpable. You could feel it, and to go ahead and do that, it was difficult, I'm sure, for a lot of people, and I'm sure a lot of people didn't do it. I mean, I can tell you in 2008, I mean, there's a lot of people that not only didn't rebalance, but you know, they cashed out and it took them years, maybe even a decade to get back in into the stock market. So the emotionality is is very real. And that's why, frankly, it's part of the reason why people hire you know us. To, so <laughs> there's some objectivity there uh, and we can go ahead and just be more rigorous, be more disciplined, be more objective and go ahead and execute when we need to, particularly under times of duress like we've recently been. Uh, so I think we all need to be aware. And just because, um, you know, I, maybe I'm more informed than most when it comes to this, it doesn't mean that I'm not completely precluded from having that uh, emotional feelings as well. I, I think the education certainly can go ahead and help counterbalance this. 
personally, I think my, my personality is just more, <laughs> I, I tend to be kind of low on the emotional and empathy scale and pretty high on the reason uh, and accountability scale. And I think that probably works well during times like this and particularly as it relates to rebalancing. But you, know, you can pull the trigger because you know you, you know that it's the right thing to do. You know that it's going to work out again, particularly in, in the coronavirus at, at some point. I mean, the economy is going to be resumed to normal here and we get a vaccine and, and things are largely going to be back to normal. Certainly the world's going to be forever changed to and shift to varying degrees that we'll discover down the road. But it, it is sort of time bound, uh, like I've said in prior episodes as well. So when you think about that, for me anyway, that that was very helpful in terms of, you know, making sure that I do stick to the, the plan and do execute the plan and do, you know, have that discipline process of buying low and selling high. But, you know, if you're not a client or, you know, if you have a, an advisor um, or you're doing this yourself, you know, just think back. I mean, did you do it? Did you go ahead and sell bonds and buy stocks in March? Uh, of this year, where you're able to do it in 2008. Um, and we got 12, 13 years apart here between these two episodes. And so, I mean, we have some real life examples here of, of whether or not you're really able to execute. And I think you have to have that healthy reflection on whether you're not uh, really able to go ahead and do it. So again, kind of the problems, it, it sounds easy in theory. It can get difficult to do emotionally, just like the diet and exercise. And then it can also quickly get complicated. And I'll give a few examples of that. So when we started out in just kind of this simple, say two fund portfolio, 50% stocks and 50% bonds, one fund for each of those. Well, nobody has that portfolio by and large. Um, you know, when you look at our average client has about three or four accounts with us, they might have a Roth account, they might have a regular IRA account for them and uh, their spouse. Maybe there's a joint or a trust account, you know, so we have some clients that probably have about eight accounts, uh, but around three or four is about the average. And not only do you have multiple accounts, but you have more than just two funds. Um, you know, you may have, say that you have 10 funds, to comprise your beautifully diversified portfolio that's you know constructed with science-based principles. So now you have 10 funds, not two. And now you have three different accounts say, well, you know, are you gonna buy all those same 10 funds in each of those accounts? If you do it right, you're probably not. One, there's different tax ramifications. So we've talked about uh, what we call asset location in the past, where kind of first you figure out what you wanna own, you know, your asset allocation, uh, but then you figure out where you wanna own them uh, or your asset location. So typically speaking, you're going to put very tax efficient U.S. equities in your joint account, in your trust account. Uh, you're going to put the really tax inefficient kind of slower growth stuff in your IRA that's going to come out and be fully taxed at some point. You're going to put your your high growth but tax uh, less tax efficient things uh, in your Roth account so you can try to maximize that tax-free growth. Uh, so that in, in simple form, you know, that's really kind of the asset location. And where the rebalancing bonus found that, you know, you can add about a half percent uh, per year in increased annualized return, that asset location, depending on your tax bracket and your time horizon, can offer similar benefits. So studies have found similarly that it could be in also another half percent net returns. So no, those are two big things that we have a lot of control over. One, rebalancing to that asset location. We can't predict what the market's going to do next month. Certainly couldn't predict the coronavirus was going to happen or that there was going to be indiscriminate selling in the middle 
middle of March uh, or some of the things that uh, have happened since then. But these are things that we have a lot of control over. So they're high probability, uh, things that we can control and things that have definitely shown to add a lot of value. So it certainly makes sense for people like us, uh, certified financial planners that are guiding our clients to focus on this and even deal with the complexity, but just make it try to be as simple as possible so clients can understand what we're doing and why and how it benefits them. So if I go back to kind of this, uh, you know, this increasing complexity. So now we have, um, so we have three accounts. We have a Roth, we have an IRA, and we have a trust account. And we've, you know, we have ten different funds. But ultimately, because of some of those differences, and uh, you know, it just doesn't line up nice and neat. We may have like fifteen or sixteen different holdings in those three accounts. So now, you know, stocks go down. Some go down more than others. Maybe our, uh, you know, our U.S. small company stock fund went down, and as it did, you know, a lot more than kind of the the large U.S. US companies. And so you start having all this different range of outcomes there. And now let me layer on one other piece of complexity here. So this is for anybody that does have one of these trust accounts or joint accounts where you get a 1099 and you have to pick up your new tax return uh, every year. Um, so if you have an account like that, which about 80% of our clients do, well, after stocks went down, uh, a lot of those holdings were in a loss position. So, Walter, I'm sure you've heard of a concept called tax loss harvesting before. Yes, yes, definitely. Trying to take it. I'm not going to try and explain it, but I've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about trying, but I said, no, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> all right. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll jump back in here, Walter. Thanks, buddy. Um, so, you know, in, in short, you know, you want to go ahead and sell something after it's gone down so you can book the tax loss, uh, but you have to, you can't buy it back within 30 days. You can buy, it has to be, um, it has to be somewhat different. So now you have this other decision where you have to kind of consider where if you just have, say, um, say it's the U.S. large S&P 500 index fund. Pretty easy to sell one index fund and then buy something that's a little bit different, um, but you know, we could kind of pass the muster for being able to deduct the tax loss and going ahead and, and buying it. But for other parts of the portfolio, it might not be as easy. So now we want to go ahead and book this tax loss. We can write off up to $3,000 off our income come tax time. Plus, you know, these funds, what's going to happen this year, they're going to kick off a fair amount of income. In, in the form of the 1099 that you're going to receive next year. And part of the reason is even though losses are down, there's certainly some turnover that's happened. Um, we'll see how this is really going to play out. But the last several years has been a good amount of capital gains that have been distributed. There's going to be some of that this year. A lot of these funds are going to have losses. But you, after your account goes down, you certainly don't want to pay taxes on a loss. And, and, and if you're not doing some of this tax loss selling, uh, that is going to happen. Um, so now I have to sell something in the joint account. I book the loss there, but I can't go ahead and buy back the same thing. So now I also have to figure out what sort of substitute security do I want to buy. And sometimes you don't have a good substitute. So you have to figure out, well, hey, is it really worth it or not to go ahead and make that sale? So let me take a breath for a moment and do a brief recap. But we started out with a very simple example of like basically two funds, well, a stock fund and a bond fund. And it was very easy to illustrate how, hey, one goes down, you sell the other one, you buy low, sell high, and you know you do that over time. It, it, it makes sense and it works out. You control risk and you tend to get this rebalancing bonus. But now when you look at it in practice, you say, okay, 
you know, our average client is three or four accounts with us. You know, we have say, you know, say 10 funds in our, in our preferred portfolio, but you know, because there's these different account types and then different tax aspects in the accounts, we may end up with say like 16 different funds. And now each of them are kind of moving a little bit differently. If we want to sell something for a loss, uh, then we can't buy back the same thing. And do we, or do we not have a good substitute to go ahead and make the trade? So very quickly, it gets quite complex. And and one final wrinkle that I'll add in here is, if you are rebalancing, you know how are you going to do it? Is it enough if it goes down by twenty percent, or should it go only by ten percent, or should you just do maybe on a calendar basis, say like quarterly or annually or something like that? Well, there was another study um, by uh, this was a guy in two thousand seven. He's he's since passed, but. Uh, he was a, a PhD, did a study on rebalancing and kind of optimal rebalancing. Gobin Dariani was his name. Uh, and what he found was that if you can just not do it on a calendar basis, but take a look every single day that the market's open, that this daily market volatility really does present a good opportunity to enhance returns. And this is really where he found that half percent rebalancing bonus per year. He said, you know, if you do it daily and checking for it daily, even if no rebalancing opportunity exists, that basically you're going to have about another half percent increase in terms of the rebalancing bonus. So again, um, much more complicated to do it on a daily basis, much more work. One, that's what we're here for uh, as a financial planning wealth management firm. Uh, But you're taking a look at it. And when you go through March and you just saw some of the daily volatility, I mean, if we would have waited, say, till the end of uh, March to go ahead and rebalance, uh, like the last, I don't know, seven to 10 days or so in March, I mean, it was pretty much straight up uh, in terms of returns. You know, the market sold off quite a good bit in early March. At the tail end of March, uh, it really bounced up pretty strongly. And if we would have waited to the end of the month, I mean, we would have just missed a, a big portion of that. So, you know, by buying, say, uh, you know, 5% more in a stock allocation and then having those stocks then rebound over the course of about a week or so by about 15%, um, you know, it's a 0.75% return to a client portfolio. I mean, if it's a million dollar portfolio, it's, you know, 7,500 bucks. So it sounds simple. It is a simple concept, um, but when you get into the actual application for a real-world client that has multiple accounts, multiple holdings, you know, has some tax considerations and maybe a tax loss harvesting opportunity, and oh by the way, we need to pay attention to daily market volatility and not just do it on a on a monthly or quarterly or annual basis to really get the biggest bang for our buck. It quickly, quickly gets quite, quite complicated. So, you know, if you have somebody that you're paying as an advisor to go ahead and give you advice, again, these are things that you have a lot of control over. These are, you know, process oriented things uh, where, you know, you look at the rebalancing bonus, you can go ahead and I personally spent a lot of time, you know, programming our trading software, which we spend, you know, more than 50 grand a year on um, to go ahead and do what we want to do. And then we have to get in here and we have to implement it. And it's not like you just click a button and you do it. I mean, there's a lot of tax considerations that we have to review. There's a lot of judgments that we have to make in terms of, well, hey, is it really make sense to go ahead and do this trade or not? So the technology certainly has helped us, but there's still a lot of manual work that really needs to be done to really get the most bang for a buck for our client. I'm really glad that you covered the frequency question because that was going to be my main comment was going to be, um, you know, we have 
this possibility of doing that. I've always heard, you know, make sure you rebalance once a year. That's sort of the throwaway line, I guess. Make sure we're rebalancing once a year and you'll be good to go. But you're saying that there's so much more opportunity out there. That's really not a very effective way to go about it. And it really does require that daily attention. And that that's a lot of value in somebody who's kind of keeping tabs on when those opportunities arise. Even though this one, obviously, with the how big the market crash was a big flaming, you know, red flag warning sign of, hey, good rebalancing time. Um, there are other more subtle things that happen throughout the year that you guys are keeping an eye out for. Even if I go back to 2018, the, the market went down uh, in the fourth quarter of 2018, about 20%. And then it quickly recovered. And I think the, the, the bottom day was like Christmas Eve. We had a client literally that year sold a business um, and you know, had a few million dollars from it and you know, had done quite well. Well, we invested the money in stocks. All those stocks were in the trust account. Uh, all the kind of tax inefficient stuff was in the IRA. But basically, we, we, we were able to save that client because the, the stocks had sold off so much. We literally, and, and again, this is process. We kind of got lucky with the timing, but preparation is when luck meets opportunity. And, um, or wait, luck is when preparation meets. There we meets. go. I screwed that up. <laughs> Strike that reverse. Preparation it. opportunity. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So I, I'm not immune to kind of making a little faux pas here, but literally, we saved this client more than two hundred thousand dollars on his tax bill. And uh, real life example, certainly not a. It is atypical, um, but we're doing this for everybody, and the savings are real for everybody. These studies that I reference about the rebalancing bonus and about a half percent per year. Uh, or the asset location. The asset location doesn't apply to to everybody. Again, the higher tax bracket, the longer your time horizon, the more that that is going to apply, which a lot of our clients do fall into uh, likely accruing significant benefits there. But literally just those two areas, I mean, that's about 1% per year. Um, so, you know, if you're paying your advisor 1% and they're just doing those just those two things and you're likely to accrue benefits from those two things over time, they should pay for themselves right there. And frankly, they should be doing a lot more. Uh, so these are, I mean, again, you can't predict things, but I mean, these are the things that we have a lot of control over. This stuff does get complicated. Most firms don't do this, um, quite frankly. I mean, I talked to a lot of them. Uh, there's a lot of complexity that's in here. Uh, most firms do just trade kind of an account by account basis. They put a portfolio in all those three accounts rather than kind of you know following these asset location qualities that I talked about because of the complexity that's involved. Um, it does get complex. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm doing this today is just try to explain to clients some of the things that we're doing, give them a, a view kind of behind the scenes starting out, you know, hey, why is this important? Again, we want to control risk. We do want to have this kind of forced buy low, sell high process. Um, so that's kind of the executive summary. But then we have a lot of engineers uh, that like some details as well. And so when we kind of pull back the, the onion a little bit, what seems to be very simple, as with a lot of things in life, uh, tends to be quickly, increasingly complex. And um, it's required a lot of our time. But these are the things that I don't know if people pay us to do, but they pay us to worry about their money and make sure that their goals are going to be met. And these are one of the two of those things that we have a lot of control over and are likely to pay high dividends to our clients over time. Always underscores for me the fact that, yes, rebalancing on its face sounds like a very simple concept, as you explained in sort of the first five minutes of today's show. But then we see that, as with anything, there's more complexities and layers to it as we go on. And also, we can't make any of these decisions in a vacuum. You can't just say, okay, let's rebalance, boom, it's done. There are other things to consider, like the tax loss harvesting, how it impacts the entire financial and uh, retirement plans and, and future goals. And all those things come into account and into the equation. And always love 
love seeing how those things intertwine and how you get deeper and deeper into the uh, situation, Kevin. So very interesting episode. As always, I feel a little bit smarter uh, about retirement and about today's show. So if you've got questions uh, like some of the ones that I had on today's show or ones that we did not address when it comes to rebalancing and some of the other things that we discussed, never hesitate to reach out. You can do so by calling 855-TWD-PLAN. That's 855-893-7526. Or go online to truewealthdesign.com. Click on the Are We Right For You button and schedule your 15-minute call with an experienced financial advisor on the True Wealth team. That's truewealthdesign.com. And we'll put links and the contact info in the show notes of today's show so it's easy to find and get in touch. Well, Kevin, enjoy the conversation this week. We'll uh, check in with you again next week for uh, another update on where this crazy world's taken us and how to react to it. But uh, thanks again for on lots of great info today. All right, I'll see if I can bring you something from the water store next week, Walter. From the water store, yes. Give us a, see if they'll be launching any new products between now and then. We'll be interested <laughs> to find out. That's Kevin Krosky. I'm Walter Storholt. Much more coming up on the next edition of Retire Smarter. Hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All performance reference is historical and not an indication of future results. Benchmark indices are hypothetical and do not include any investment fees.